but it's actually an incredible, powerful tool, you know. So I have, you know, strong energy and a very, very willful mind. And when I'm determined to do something, you know, there's not a lot that's going to stop me except being really sick. <laughs> and so it was a little bit like having a, you know, an elephant, you know, bench pressing you, you know, like. <laughs> You know, you can't negotiate with an elephant that's been pressing you. It's like, you know, for me, I had to find another way of what was another kind of energy other than this kind of willful, determined, like, you know, hell-bent, like, I'm going to do it kind of energy. And I remember, you know, the very earlier part of my, my journey when I was in India in a few years before, and... When I went to Bodh Gaya and you know, the pilgrims were, were prostrating in front of the Mahabodhi stupa or they were circumambulating it. And I was, I was incredulous because it was like, okay, so physically like, I can figure out how you can go from standing to bowing. You know, I can, I can work that out. But it was like, where did they find the place inside of them to do that? Like, where was the devotion coming from that inspired and encouraged and motivated them to bow like that, you know? To walk in every step bow in a circumambulation of Maha, the Mahabodhi Stupa. Or I'd heard some people had come from huge distances and they bowed every step along the way to get there. It's like, this is such a different kind of orientation to practice than the Vipassana scene where we sit in silence, you know, we and we well, there's no devotion, there's no bowing, there's none none of that. And so, you know, in a monastery culture there's a lot of bowing. You know, there's you know, we bow and we sit down, we bow and we get up in the liturgies, we bow many times during the liturgies and and so I remember in that time of sickness that, you know, that there was a sense of, well, no matter how unwell I felt, like even sometimes when it felt like I had no capacity to really focus on my breath, you know, body was this complete blur, you know, I could still chant and I could still bow, you know. And so for me, there was like, you know, the chanting and the bowing took on a completely different meaning from like this kind of like empty, lifeless ritual. It became the sum total of my anchor to the path because the normal quality of brightness of mind that I normally associated with meditation was like so rare, I just didn't have access to it very often. But I could always chant and I could always bow. And so for me there was a sense of what learning, another level of learning what surrender was. And another level of learning how, you know, being tired or kind of somewhat disoriented or confused or a sense of, you know, um, whatever it was, fear, huge fear or terrible anger, you know, this was all happening. You know, I could still somehow gather it in together and, and, and through bowing and chanting, that's what I had to offer and that was sufficient. And so one of the griefs and illness is not only the loss of physical mobility and cognitive functions, but the loss of, of identification with practice and the way that we're familiar with it. It's like, you know, when stuff like this is going on, the normal ways that we know how to practice, we can't do. And so it's, it's challenging, you know.
<coughs> so those first years were, oh, wow, they were rough because there was such fear. I mean, just terror, absolute terror, you know, not knowing how I was going to get through this and what it meant. And then fury, just rage, you know, that this was happening. And, and you know, and then eventually there's kind of some modicum of capacity to navigate this stuff and let it go and work with it. And, and finding ways to navigate my energy better. But it never really kind of completely left my system. And then, you know, I remember going to see healers. So I have some thing with healers. I go see healers all the time because there's always weird illnesses that I'm navigating and the regular medical people that can't help. So I go see healers. So I've got, I've had the blessing of having amazing healers. Amazing healers. So I went to go see this healer, amazing healer, and um, he's asking me, you know, what happened, you know, and I told him I got sick, and, and, and so he was saying, well, well, how did you get sick? And I said, well, what happened was, was the abbot had asked everybody in the community to have a flu injection, and continued by saying, and if you don't want to have a flu injection and you get sick, I want you to go into the backfield and not expect anybody to look after you. <laughs> <laughs> so... I um, I noticed there was some kind of energy in the nuns community when this was happening, and I did not mean to debrief what that was all about, but people were a little bit agitated by the um, lack of um, options that were being presented. <laughs> so anyway, so I got the flu injection, and it made me sick. But what happened was, is, is that because of whatever was going on, there was some concern about whether or not I could ordain because I was sick. And I was like, you've got to be joking, you know? <laughs> you've got to be joking. I'm sick because I did what I was asked to do and now there's some question about whether I could ordain. So I'm telling the healer the story about this. And you know, sometimes healers, they just nail you. I mean, they just so nail you. And he started shouting at me. And he said, this is your karma. You cannot expect anybody else to take responsibility for it you have to take responsibility for it you have a choice either you can let go or you can be right what you want (laughs) (laughs) you know it's like wow so you know life sometimes is not tremendously fair or generous or particularly empathetic and it's like that's part of our practice you know and it sucks (laughs) and yet we're left with this choice of do we want to be right and hold on to this as some kind of a of a thing that we are owed or do we want to let go? So that 20 minute treatment with this healer shifted about 85% of the chronic fatigue out of my system because it was exactly what I needed in order to just let go. You know, let go. Let go. So one of the things that I also have learned through that illness and other illnesses is, is, is that I cannot leapfrog over my pain 
my personal pain, the places where I'm emotionally stuck, the places where things have landed in me, either as part of my interest to get well physically or as part of my practice. I have to actually touch it, know it, get underneath it, feel it, understand it, and let it do what it does. Which is actually a very different style of approach, even though that's absolutely are the teachings. There was some kind of sense that if I could just be determined enough, I didn't have to go there. You know? If I could just meditate well enough, clear enough, strong enough, determined enough, then I did not have to go there. I could leapfrog over the actual reality of my experience. And guess what? Can't do it. Can't do it. Have to touch it. Have to feel the pain, the outrage. Have to feel the unfairness. Have to feel the lack of accountability or the lack of safety. The frustration. Have to feel it. And let it go. Now, when I came out of England and I came to this country, I was I was here for a while, and it was quite a transition. And again, my system was quite impacted. So it wasn't actually a physical illness; it was just the huge impact of monumental change. And then I was at another monastery and had exposure to mold. And my system, my system crashed. And um, it just, it just, you know, wasn't functioning very well. And so, and then I got chemically sensitive. So I was, you know, being in a building, riding in a car, going on a bus, you know, just being in somebody's house was problematic. And so I was I was actually on the road moving around trying to navigate all this. So it was really challenging, you know, the sense of you know, where's their safety? And walking through a living room felt like I was in a battlefield, you know. It was just really challenging. And I remember I was on the road and I was staying in a place and I'd asked, you know, if I could stay and somebody had offered that I could stay in their house and they were incredibly kind because they knew that I was dealing with all these chemical sensitivities. And so they had cleaned all the house like four days before. They'd taken all of the chemicals out of the house and they put them in the garage. You know, they'd done every single thing that they needed to do. They welcomed me. They invited me. You know, they, they offered me food. Beautiful, kind, incredible, generous offering. And I went to rest in the bed and the sheets had been washed in fabric softener. <laughs> and my system, 
completely flipped out. I felt like I had just walked through open gunfire, like there was actually live ammunition shooting at me. And so I was in bed, you know, with my whole system totally activated. And I thought, okay, it's fabric softener. It's not a machine gun. It's fabric softener. It's not a machine gun. It's fabric softener. It's not a machine gun. But my nervous system was not at all convinced. You know, it was like not. I'm not. I'm not. This is this is lethally dangerous. You know, was the way my body was reacting. And so I, I got up in the next morning, and I was just. I was. I was. I hadn't slept hardly at all. I did everything I knew to soothe and to calm and to self-regulate, and I was just shaking like a leaf. And I got on a bicycle, and I had an appointment downtown or somewhere, and I got on the bike, and I was pedaling away, pedaling away, pedaling away. And then about, I don't know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes, I started to feel so much better. And so I realized that when there's some kind of like a, a trauma response like that, where your system goes into that kind of a reaction, you can't talk yourself out of it. It's actually a physiological response that you need to respond to physiologically. So even though we would all know that getting on a bicycle and running away from the fabric softener is a ludicrous, when, you're, when, you're, when your brainstem is activated that feels that you are under danger and you're actually able to engage the muscles of your body to run away, then your whole system actually self-regulates in a completely different way. So you can't talk yourself out of that kind of activation. It doesn't work. So one of the things that has also been happening for me over these years is a little bit more learning and understanding and sophistication about these reactive mechanisms and how one needs to respond to them in the right way. And so if one is in a, a trauma response, which that is, that's a trauma response, you cannot talk yourself out of it. You need to actually work with yourself physiologically in order to help um, release some of the activation. So in meditation, you know, I, I was under the impression when I first started many years ago that if you observe things, that that's the magic wand that's going to be able to go loop loop and everything's going to disappear. And, you know, I've learned that the magic wand of loop loop works with some things and there's other things that, the, that what is needed is a discernment in the way that we are observing and the way that we're engaging with it. It's different, you know. So it has, it has also taught me a certain kind of versatility of like a repertoire. Like I've got a few things in my toolbox that are different. You know, I just don't think that sitting still and upright and watching what's arising is necessarily going to be the only thing that's needed in order to deal with what's going on. Yeah. So what happened? August, we had a lot of rain in Colorado. A lot of rain in, in the spring. We had huge rain. We had a whole year's worth of rain in a month and then another whole year's worth of rain the next month. Now, I'm living in this little spot. It's a spectacular, sweet little spot and it's on a hill and it doesn't get flooded and everything's cool. So I wasn't worried because we had huge rain before and there was no problem. And then my energy started to drop and my interest started to drop and I started to feel peculiar and I didn't have any really understanding why. And we found some mold. So, okay, so you find the mold, you clean the mold. It's like, okay, you know, 
that's what's happening. It's all right. But I was feeling out of sorts and peculiar, and I didn't understand. I just did not understand. I didn't couldn't, couldn't pick it together. So I went on a teaching trip, and I'm teaching it gratefully for me. And I don't know why quite this works. But even when like my body is not well, the dhamma still flows. So I can teach even if I'm not well, you know. So I was on this teaching trip and teaching, and I stopped into into um, a, a healer who I know. So there were some things going on. I wasn't quite sure what it was. And I thought what had happened was the mold had caused some um, toxicity in my system and it was I was processing it through my liver. Because the body pain was up and I was feeling crappy and my liver was crappy and so I thought, you know, I don't know what's going on. So he just put his hands on my shoulders for seconds, like 10 seconds, 30 seconds, he says, no, it's all coming from your head. He said, the ignition system of your brain has shut down. And so, um, and so he said, I need to, you know, you're going to need treatments and, um, and it will, I think we'll be able to get it sorted out, but this is what's going to happen. You know, I need to treat you for every two weeks for two to four months and, and this is what it's going to look like. So I was on my way headed back to Colorado, and and then I thought, I I said, well, can I get treatments there? He said, no, because what I'm doing is actually working in the center of your brain, and most people don't know how to do that. So let's not try and see if you can get those treatments there, you know. So I'm on a teaching tour, and I'm not feeling very well, and I'm not thinking very clearly, and my memory's not very good, and I needed to change and move back and come back to Colorado to California and stay for a few months and get these treatments. And, you know, it's like, well, how do you do that, you know? <laughs> so you call up friends and you say, I need to do this, can you help? And they help me think through things, because my thinking wasn't very clear. And it came together very, very, very quickly. <coughs> so I was getting the treatments, and it was the, it's the <coughs> weirdest sensation when your brain isn't being manipulated. It's like something is not right. You know, you feel like you're tilted or... Something is just very peculiar, you know? And so there's this kind of sense of disorientation, you know, deep disorientation. And not being able to think clearly, not being able to remember, not being able to track, having very little feeling, having very little interest, having very little energy. It's like what we normally associate with as who we are can be changing you know it can change and yet even in these times when what seems so deeply who we are is impacted there still is the capacity to shift attention to rest in the knowing of what is so this is not the same as resting in the in the focusing one's attention on one's breath. This is relaxing attention into the knowing of disorientation, of confusion, of not clear thinking, of, of feeling peculiar, of what it feels like not to have any interest or any energy or any emotions. You know, just to like what that feels like. And to move from noticing and being absorbed into the thing itself to leaning into the 
the cognizing of it, the knowing of it, the, 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 the awareness of what is. And so, you know, we have things that go on with our systems and our systems are impacted and yet we can still practice with it. It's not the same in the way that we normally practice. Because normally when we practice, we're looking at focusing our attention on the breath, (coughs) instilling the mind, and engaging with and working with the objects that are arising. This is a different way of practicing. (coughs) But this way of practicing where we are just dropping into the clarity of knowing itself, something that we can touch into. Even when something like our brain is not working right. Because it's actually not dependent on our brain working right. This consciousness cannot be located in an organ. And so we have to try that out ourselves. If we just drop in right now, just feel what we feel right now, and move our attention from the physical sensations or the sight or the hearing of what you know right now, and lean into the bright, clear awareness that knows that. Don't grab after it. Lean into that. Can you sense that? Can you feel that? Now with that bright, clear awareness that knows sound, that knows sight, that knows pressure, that knows sensation, that knows, is it in the object or is it distinctly separate from the object? Does it exist in the object? Is it in the sound? Is it in the side? Is it in the touch? Or is it someplace else? And so normally what happens in our meditation is we are observing an object where our mind is grasping onto the object. We are releasing the grasping, releasing the grasping, and moving into the clarity of knowing that is not separate from the object. Can you sense that? Can you feel that? Do you have some sense of what that is for you? Okay. Now, that knowing, is it in your brain? Is it in your heart? Is it in your legs? Is it in your feet? Is it absence from your arms or your legs or your hands or your feet? It cannot be located. That knowing cannot be located in a part of our body. And it also cannot be located inside as opposed to outside. Look. 
Is there something absolutely separate and distinct from what appears and arises in the mind? As opposed to what we feel and perceive inwardly? And so dropped into this clear knowing we can bring that clear (coughs) knowing to what's arising. The fear, the anger, the frustration, the concern, the uncertainty, the inability, the not being able to navigate this or that. The huge kind of spaces that open up of I don't know how this is going to resolve and I don't know what's going to happen. Just bringing that clarity to whatever it is that arises and watch what happens to what arises. We don't have to do anything. What arises by itself resolves. And what's left when what arises resolves. What's left is this clarity of knowing. That's left. And so it's not as if we have a way to not experience the things that arise. They arise. And our job is not to shut them out or to make them not be there or to hold on to something that we wish (coughs) otherwise. Certainly, in my experience, I've needed to develop skill so that I can work with the fear or the anger and I've needed to understand how to meet it, how to touch it and how to get underneath it. But there's also this way of just bringing that clarity of mind to what's arising and just holding the space there and seeing what happens. Sometimes that's all that is needed for it to resolve. So, I don't know if it's true for any of you, but I, I grew up in a system of family, a culture, my own body, my own brain, my own nervous system, my own tendencies, where like, I had no idea what patience was. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Like, I had no clue what patience was, nor did I have any idea how to cultivate it. And if anyone, you know, would encourage me to be more patient, my response was just kind of like, you know, you've got to be joking, you know. What's that? Or why? Why would anyone want to be patient, you know? And yet, there's something that happens with illness, particularly these illnesses that are peculiar or weird or don't easily resolve or stay around for a long time, where in spite of myself, absolutely in spite of myself, I've learned what patience is. And it's not endurance. It's not just waiting until it changes. It's the interest and the curiosity to be with what is and to be okay with what is. Even though 
there's all kinds of reasons why we can think what's going on doesn't feel okay. So, you know, when I was in Anagarika and I was saying, please, please, anything, no matter what it takes, anything, no matter what it takes. And it seems to me like, you know, one of the things that has come my way has been many different kinds of illnesses. None of them I have chosen. And every single one of them has been an incredible opportunity for growth and for understanding and for practice. Last year, I have an electric bicycle, which is great because in Colorado it's hilly, you know, and my energy is not very robust, or it alternates quite a lot, and so it means that I have a wider range of where I can go. And but I wasn't on my electric bicycle; I was on a regular bicycle, and I just come back from a teaching trip. And the Garden of the Gods is right next to me, and I'm an energy person, and I'm sensitive to energy. So if I can get into the Garden <coughs> of the Gods as fast as possible, it's very hugely restorative. And so I'd come back from a teaching trip, and usually I come back from these trips and I feel like a beached whale. I'm just kind of <coughs> wasted, you know? And so I, I, got, I got my bike and I went to go take a ride. And, you know, I had had a slow leak for a while, and so I did what I'd always done, which is I check the tire, it's flat, I pump it up, I check to make sure that it's still holding, I put my helmet on, I lock my helmet, and the tire's still holding, I'm ready to go, off I go. And 10 minutes later, I was turning to go where I normally go, and the bike didn't turn. It shot out from underneath me, and I went airborne, and I went on my head. And again, you know, I didn't think, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it, but I didn't get it, but I was um, badly hurt. It took a while for me to actually register that I had actually quite a bad concussion. But, you know, one of the things with the bad concussion, I, another weird thing that happens with brains is, is that they, when they get jiggled, they start doing strange things. And one of the strange things that was happening with that thing was is that I was having these sensory processing, like, crises. So, like, if I would get overstimulated, it was like my whole system would have a meltdown. Now, have, have ever, any of you done flip turns in a swimming pool? Do you know what a flip turn is? Mm-hmm. Now, have you ever, after you did them before, done a flip turn and felt completely disoriented? Mm-hmm. Yes? Okay. So these, these sensory processing kind of meltdowns is like a flip turn, but on like four different planes. <laughs> like emotionally, physically, sensory, locationally. It's like absolute, total, complete and utter overwhelm and disorientation, you know? And if I would get overstimulated, I was setting myself up for having one of these meltdowns. And so there was a couple times when I had these meltdowns, and it's like, you know, how on earth do you deal with that? So I would just go to the Garden of the Gods, which is like my safest, most okay place to be. And I would just relax into the rocks, and I would just... That was not patience. That was just sheer endurance, waiting until these storms of total disorientation and confusion would move through my system. You know? Utter, utterly disorganizing. And they would, and I would be a little bit worn out from it, but I would be okay afterwards. 
But one of the things that happened from that whole thing with the concussion, which was hard to really understand exactly how it, how it happened, but there was a way in which some things constellated that because it was so intense and so shaking up on so many different levels, that there was a very deep and profound kind of letting go that took place. And so I, I was so kind of like transformed by this letting go experience that I ended up thinking that that whole process of the concussion was one of the greatest blessings that I'd ever experienced in my life. And I couldn't tell whether the devas caught me or whether devas were the ones that actually tipped me out so that I landed on my head so that I could go through all of that. (laughs) But, you know, we have very strong identities around being functional. And, you know, one of the things that happened with mother concussion was that my eye went wonka-doodle. And, and so, you know, my balance went wonka-doodle and my eye went wonka-doodle. And, you know, as somebody where my main kind of like my primary joy is to go scrambling around the Garden of the God rocks, you know, having eyes that are wonka-doodles and battle, balance that's wonka-doodle is problematic for my fundamental joy, you know. But when there's the kind of like, okay, how can I soften into this and relax into this? And, you know, am I safe enough? And if I'm not, what do I need to do? And how can I lean into this, you know? And so in every single one of these instances, there's a really deep and profound opportunity for looking at the places where we hold on about who and what we think we are and where we feel we need our joy and what we need to have in order to get it. It cuts right into all those things. And that's part of the reason why illness is so challenging. Because it's like, you know, it hits below the belt, you know? And yet our practice is able to meet it with every single step. What's happening now? How am I relating to it? What's needed now? And how can I bring it? What kind of support do I need to, to go through this? And so this last round with all of this, whatever, you know, again, it is incredible sweetness because even though I've had elephants sitting on me for decades now, mm-hmm. I still have this feeling like it's up to me to figure it all out by myself. You know, this is a core structure. And with this last round of my brain kind of like out to lunch, and the way everything happened with such incredible care and tenderness with so many people what I was just aware of was this sweetness of just soaking up and soaking in this love you know there's absolutely no way that I can do it all by myself I can't think about it all myself figure it out by myself make it happen by myself and what happens is there's this kind of like in, in arising of this phenomenal level of care and kindness which may have always been there but sometimes when we're that vulnerable 
is when we feel it, when we know it, when we let it in. You know, to feel such sweetness of care of so many people around. Now, the, the good news is, is, in my situation for right now, if you want to call it good, is, is that all these physical things are sorting themselves out. The brain is good enough. The medicines I probably have another three weeks to take. You know, it's all working well enough, you know, and back into reasonably normal functioning. But the, the heartfulness of having had these challenges is deeply enriched from the experience of meeting them and sharing them with others. You know, the, the, the talking things through or the, the, the receiving the support from healers or from medicines or from care and kindness of people in different ways. And so there's this interesting kind of mixture of this kind of exquisite vulnerability and confidence that somehow co-arise. The recognition of the incredible fragility and vulnerability of what this mind-body system actually is like and this kind of resounding confidence That, that takes through the journey of it's okay if it's not okay. There's something else that's okay. I know that there's something else that's okay. So I was so deeply grateful for the, my sisters in the Aloka Vahara. They welcomed me to come on retreat because, you know, just being able to completely unplug and to just drop in and to notice the nuances and to feel things in sensitive ways and to not, you know, they, they have worked so hard to put this place together and they have done so with an enormous amount of support with a large number of people. But it's been a huge undertaking. But I didn't have any duties and responsibilities. I could just be on retreat, you know, and turn my cell phone off for three weeks, you know, and not look at an email and not be on the telephone and just practice in this lovely forest where they have access to, the, to this beautiful, wild, powerful creek stream that comes through and just see what emerges. Just let the layers reveal themselves. And I feel so much better from having been able to do that. So the unchosen path is a path. It's not an invalid path. It's a path. And whether these ailments are physical or whether they're mental, it's a path. And we can bring our clarity and our discernment and our care and our attention and our kindness to what's arising. To make absolute 
optimum use of it for understanding what is it to be human and alive? What is it to wake up? What does it mean to be okay when it's not okay? Where is that place of security, of safety, of refuge? And can we abide there? Know that? Can we share that with each other? Can we remind each other that that actually is what we are doing here together? So I'd like to stop now, offer these comments for reflection. And I'd like to open up the floor if there's comments or questions or things to share. (coughs) Yes, please, Brian. When you first started working with this, being with, Whatever is going on. How did you practice with uh, the storyline of what? I get caught up still in the story of why I'm in this particular matter, and that's where I have a hard time shutting off the that portion. Well, my story—I kept that one going for 17 years. The first one, you know. Trying to find more years. So sometimes their stories are very compelling and in that situation it took somebody hollering at me for me to actually really see what I was doing and the choices that I was making which is that I was sacrificing getting well in order to stay bought into the story. And so I couldn't see it myself. It took years and it took somebody hollering at me for me to actually see what was going on and then to be willing to recognize there's nothing that's more important than letting go. So with story, you know, sometimes, you know, you need and sometimes that comes externally and sometimes we need to work it internally. What's underneath the story? What am I invested in? What's going on here? To pick it apart, to unpack it. Sometimes we need help. We need somebody else to hold the space for us to help hold the inquiry so that we can actually do that work because we keep looping. Yes, please. I'm finding that uh, intense pain is is uh, I watch the mind, my mind focus on it for a while and then it it wants to jump off and and it also wants to find an answer. I can tell when I'm wanting the pain to go away, but it's very difficult not to want the pain to go away <laughs> and to just hold that and be in the experience because it hurts. So I, I have a feeling that part of that is story, but it, I'm finding it very hard to shift a way to hold it that feels um, 
Well, I think with pain, I think it's really helpful to oscillate one's attention. And so, you know, certainly meeting it and looking at the resistance to meeting it is an important part. But then deliberately, consciously take your attention away from it and let your attention rest in something which is soothing and nourishing and not painful. Because, you know, we have somehow, I don't know why we've got this idea that meditation is about grabbing onto it and holding it until it dies. <laughs> well, I'm trying not to do this tight thing. Right. But in order but to not do the tight thing, you need to restore and refresh and nourish yourself. And part of that is allowing your attention to move to what is nourishing. And that can be an object that is nourishing. Or if you have any access to this quality of mind that knows, that is deeply and profoundly nourishing. Devotion can be nourishing. Joy can be nourishing. Laughing can be nourishing. You know, take your attention away and let it fill with something that's nourishing. And then you can come back refreshed to watch the not just the pain, but the resistance because when you release the resistance then the pain reduces yeah and, and when you were talking I can see where I do that yeah. like all over not just with physical pain yes yeah yeah. Um, yeah yeah that's the letting go piece yeah okay yeah thank you Very quiet. Are you thinking? Are you blown away? Are you wondering? <laughs> What's happening? I didn't hear that. Sarah. So many times I'm relaxed. Yeah. It's a good thing. I, I, I love listening to you tonight. What did you love? Yeah. Um, the, the, the identify. I identify with. Determination to, I want to wake up. And I don't care what it gets, and it's that just determination that's going to get me through, you know. And and all the richness that you talk about when you kind of let go of that, let it be somehow separated from it or something. Thank you. Yes. I was very taken by um, how close I felt to your experience. Mm-hmm. I, like I was standing there with you as you talked about this. Mm-hmm. What do you think helped you feel that close to it? I think uh, personally, I think listen very carefully, and then you have a for me. <laughs> You have a radiance uh, that connects with me, and uh, I, I don't mean that metaphorically or anything. There's a there's a nice connection. Yeah. And uh, <coughs> the other thing was the, the warmth and clarity with what you experienced and talked about. In many ways, I thought were, I mean, obviously were difficult. And that you were able to connect with that in a, to me in a compassionate way and give it to us mm-hmm. without sugarcoating it in something. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that very much. Mm-hmm. Very much. 
Thank you. I really enjoyed it. I have had several conditions in my life that I've had to deal with. And uh, I used to be a victim of the conditions and miserable. And somewhere there is a fundamental shift um, where I no longer had a tormentor in my life. I had teachers. These experiences became teachers. And when I was able to look at those illnesses as teachers, then started to work at what I actually gained from those experiences that I had or that I was currently having, um, it, it shifted. You know, there's just, I'm not always there. You know, sometimes <coughs> I, you know. Um, but, but yeah, there was a fundamental shift, and I think that's kind of basically the gist of what you said. And so I really resonated, and I also had been really sick from mold before the point where the doctors could not figure out what was going on with me, but they looked at me and said, I don't know what to tell you, but you do not look good at vacate those premises now. Yeah. And, you know, I was lost my hair down to a size four, couldn't see straight. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's horrifying. So I was really, really, yeah, that disorientation. Yeah. And what do you think helped you switch from victim to <coughs> victim mode to um, courageous kind of well, engagement? I, I, you know, there's I, I'm always um, I, you know probably actually meditation and yoga. I started practicing on my own and started coming across probably drastic suffering. Really, I mean, I got to the point where something needed to change, so I started seeking out some kind of solution other than the medical profession and um, started finding, and the mold was really what brought me, I think, I got so sick from the mold and they ran all the tests and they couldn't figure out what was happening to me, and so I started looking in holistic ways and started coming across meditation in ways, you know, and so the suffering of the condition, and then through that journey, Somehow or somewhere it shifted. I don't really know if it was one thing in specifically or it was just a gradual awakening from that in that area. Yeah. Because it's so it's so interesting. I mean, for me, the same thing. You know, the sense of you know, poor pitiful me. You know, look what happened to me. A terrible thing happened to me. You know, and it's just like the purchase of that, like the kind of total sink your teeth into this and run with this for years kind of energy, you know, mm-hmm. and then and then and then it turns, it shifts from you know look at all the terrible things that I've had to go through to look at all of the lessons that I'm learning and the gifts that were given as a result of that yes. experience and yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's almost as if, like, with some of this stuff, it's like we have to suffer so much. It's like there's a coefficient of suffering that we need to fill before we can flip to this other way of, wow, look at the blessings. At least that was in my case, you know? The words that come to me with about that shift that I've experienced is going from hostility to friendliness, from rejecting to, to really choosing to work with it. Which I guess lately we've been calling friendliness. <laughs> uh, and maybe it is that you just can't take anymore, you know, 
anymore hating it, anymore pushing it away, anymore. And you've done as much of that as you possibly can do it, and you're not going to let go of it. It's a real magic moment, that moment, you know, when it switches. When it switches. Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's really profound what you said, you know, letting go. I mean, I heard so many times with the way you said it. And it reminds me, you know, I came from a very chaotic childhood. And because of that, a lot of things are repetitious as an adult. And I, and I see I have a choice whether to suffer or to let it go or to have joy. And why I choose to suffer because it's familiar habit. Now I can let go of that habit. And no matter what, and you said something about being aware, being in the moment, and, and saying, well, I can feel good now, and it doesn't matter. Things go on, things change. So um, it's the wisdom or the awakening of, of being in the moment of that I'm doing it to me and taking responsibility for me. Like I think you said, somebody said to you that I, uh, I'm doing it to me more than somebody else is doing it to me. So I'm choosing to keep it going. So I have to awaken to that and let it go and be at peace with myself so I can be at peace with others. But I also think one of the things that would be really wise for us to understand is the role that we can support each other in this way. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's not like we need to become therapists for each other. That's not what I'm suggesting. But another person who is willing to actually enter into your experience and just slow down and just say, yeah, you know, that sounds really hard, or I hear how sad you are, I feel how frustrated you are. I see it, I feel it, I'm here with you in this experience right now. And, and you know, what other choices do you, can you see, you know? What else can you do with this other than fight it or resist it or resent it or wish it wasn't happening? And I think as each of us know that choice point in ourselves, then we can show up without even having to say anything for somebody else. Where it's like we come into their experience, touch them, touch what's going on, and just hold that knowing of that choice point just silently. That's all you have to do is hold it silently. And there's something in that that is conveyed just by being alive, engaged with somebody in that choice point in yourself, it's conveyed to the other. And I think there's a there's a there's a what's the word? A missed opportunity in sanghas, because what happens oftentimes in sanghas is that people come and they sit silently. So I was just delighted to have the break and everybody wanting to talk to each other. I mean, that is so healthy. But we need more than 10 minutes. (laughs) We so totally need more than 10 minutes, you know, to really touch what's going on and find out and to meet each other and to really attune and to have different times when we relate to each other only than just the night when we come for the meditation. 
That's a whole separate talk, you know, the Sangha as a matrix for awakening. And we are not learning how to do that with each other. Yes. I wonder about the coming and going of compassion, and that's sort of what you're talking about. Um, With a kind of an ordeal that you and some other people have gone through, I would think that the sense of self is so... I don't know, so much in the foreground that it's difficult to think much about others. And I I wonder about the comings and goings, uh, depending on how difficult a physical struggle you're having at any given time. Well, that's certainly true that when, you know, things get really intense, that one's capacity just, you know, it's like when you go into freezing water, your blood goes to where it's needed, you know, it goes to the organs, it pulls away from Mm -hmm. periphery. You know, and so when your energy drops, when your limits drop, when your limits become more clear, when the pain is high, when the brain's not functioning, it just it just drops. But for me, the dropping is not self-absorbed so much as it is like math. You know, you've got this amount of energy, you've got this many places. Where is it going to go? Okay, and because. And then, you know, and then I do withdraw. And so, you know, I've needed to create a schedule, you know, structures where I have enough time around so that I can drop, you know. So I was having these treatments, you know, and feeling so weird afterwards for such a long time and like sleeping like huge amounts of time. So I'd have these treatments and I knew that I couldn't, I wouldn't schedule talking to anybody or seeing anybody or anything for like, well, for, when I first started having them, for a week, you know, just give me a whole week just to flop and flap and do what I needed without having any pressure on at all to try and pull it together for somebody else. So that when I did meet them, I wasn't, it wasn't this huge effort. It was actually, I could meet them more easily. And then as I get better, as we get better, then we have more capacity. Yeah. But you're right, when, when our energy drops, when our illnesses are more intense, when things are, are very difficult, our, we don't have the energy for it to be moving in many different directions. It needs to be very, very focused. And you're consciously focusing on what needs to be done as opposed to focusing on the story about exactly. what a bummer this is. Well, it was very interesting for me because through this last range of this, all of this, there was very little story. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd think, you know, with brain problems, there'd be a story, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, having to relocate or resettle or any, I mean, there was lots of places, there was plenty of opportunity for story. But it wasn't really, I wasn't frightened, I wasn't freaked out, I wasn't worried, I wasn't agitated, I wasn't. It's like, you know, this is what's happening. It is what's happening. Um, it will be happening as long as it's happening. And, I, and, you know, we'll figure it out. A little bit of emotional kind of like, a little, a little uh, there was some emotional holding on to the kind of like, I don't actually know if I'm going to be able to read again, you know. But 
So that came, I could see that, and then it, it leaves. But we have to, that's part of the reason why this kind of stuff is so challenging, is because normally there's a, there's a flow inward and outward of compassion and the way that we are with our experience and the way that we're relating to others, and that's part of the way we self-regulate, is that flow of inner and outer meeting of people. And then this stuff happens and it interrupts those flows. And that it's like we are we there's no way we can be engaged in the normal kinds of meetings of people. It's just simply not an option. And that can be very disruptive to our self regulation mechanisms unless we recognize that it's actually held in something quite a bit bigger. Well, you were talking earlier about how amazingly held and supported you were. It's like it's kind of a thing about self and what the self is. It's a very strange thing. It is a very, very strange thing. And it has to do with letting go. It doesn't have to do with self. It doesn't have to do... It has to do with letting go. And so when the letting go is happening, then then the experience is, is, is one of, of sweetness. Or in this situation, it was, it's not always sweet, but in this situation, it was one of sweetness. Very deep, very, very deep sweetness. Yeah. It's ten past nine. Can I take one more question? Is that okay? Yes, in the back. I actually have a, a comment. You were talking about um, supporting Sandra. Yes. And I think... Um, since I got sick in, in June, uh, the support from the Sangha has been just wonderful. And it's amazing uh, to me to realize how many people care about me. And there's such a genuineness. And uh, I'm having it actually a different reaction. You were saying that. Um, when you're ill, you know, you can be taken out of yourself and you don't act like like yourself. And or I think that's how I understood it. And that's what's been happening to me. I've been realizing I'm not acting the same as people. <coughs> Some of those times are really wonderful because I'm I'm different and I see the change. And uh, this illness it's just so wonderful. I I was telling um, someone just earlier that if someone said um, you can either have the illness without, like, we'll take away your illness and we'll take away your dharma, and I wouldn't have that. I'll take the illness, but I will keep the dharma because it's just mid amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <coughs> I've actually just started um, three years ago, actually this month, it's been three years that I started with my sattva. And um, the changes in my life have been amazing. Um, the first talk I heard at the end of it, the woman said, trust in the unfolding of your life. I didn't know what that meant at that time. Now, three years later, I've got this illness, 
And I can look back and say, yes, yes, I'm trusting in the unfolding of my life. But I couldn't have done it without my sangha. That's right. And it's, it's just wonderful. And actually, I spoke with um, Aya Anandavodi about three months ago. We just actually met, met at a Whole Foods. And she was, I was saying something really negative about my illness. And she said a few words to me, and it was just so wonderful. And it's like, okay, all these things are happening, you know, and these people are meeting. And, and now I hear you, you know, and it's just, it's wonderful. There's, there's such a joy. And, uh, of course, you know, there's a lot of aversion, too, you know. It's like read, aversion, delusion, read, aversion, delusion, you know. But I feel like I'm waking up to it. I'm seeing it. It's like, okay, there it is, there it is, there it is, now this, now this, now yeah. that. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes it just fills me with joy to be able to see that. Yeah. <coughs> Three years ago, I wouldn't have seen that. That's right. That's right. And... It's all good. <laughs> so who feels joy hearing this? <laughs> so maybe this is a good note to end. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I want to just mention that there's a sign-up sheet in the back if you'd like to be on the Awakening Truth um, email list and that I'm going to be doing a uh, retreat in Southern California with a very, very dear colleague of mine. It's a special retreat. It's an insight dialogue, a personal meditation retreat on the theme of breaking the cycle of suffering. We're going to be working with um, uh, Patichi Samapada, the 12 links of dependent co-arising. There's still some spaces open if you're interested. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.